Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Uh, this morning, I am excited to continue our Advent preaching series entitled Christmas at the Movies. Uh, throughout this series, we are exploring well-known Christmas movies to better understand how these movies convey the themes of Advent. And what are the themes of Advent? Do you remember? Hope, peace, joy, and love. So we're trying to understand how these holiday movies convey the themes of Advent, as well as the biblical essence of Christmas. Now, so far in these messages, we have delved into two holiday movies, Miracle on 34th Street and Home Alone. This morning, we turn our attention to another classic. In fact, it's the oldest film that we are going to examine in this message series, and that would be It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you have seen this holiday movie? Yeah, pretty much everybody. Now, what adds an interesting element 
to the history of this movie, It's a Wonderful Life, is that upon its release in 1946, it performed terribly at the box office. Did you know this? It actually failed to cover production costs and took in less money than it cost to make, which, of course, no producer, no director wants to hear that kind of news. No actors want to hear that kind of news. Not only that, but this movie went on to be nominated for five Academy Awards. However, it failed to secure any awards. And so the film industry in the 1940s deemed It's a Wonderful Life a colossal failure. And people pretty much forgot about it. It faded from public memory for at least the next 30 years. However, in 1974, a clerical error led to the expiration of the film's copyright, allowing TV stations, which are always trying to save a buck or two, allowing TV stations to air this movie virtually for free. And so seizing this opportunity during the holiday season, TV stations began to air this movie nonstop, causing audiences at home to fall in love with it. Eventually, It's a Wonderful Life became this cherished classic that we all know and love. Today, in the 21st century, the American Film Institute recognizes It's a Wonderful Life as one of the 100 best American films ever made. In addition, it's number one on their list as the most inspirational movie of all time. But what makes It's a Wonderful Life so wonderful? What makes It's a Wonderful Life so popular? What makes It's a Wonderful Life so inspiring? Why do audiences in the 21st century continue to fall in love with this black and white movie? Well, as we're going to see in this message, this film brings to life several biblical themes, including, number one, the significance of human life, number two, the importance of helping others, and number three, the profound impact one person's existence can have. Again, the significance of human life, the importance of helping others, and the profound impact one person's existence can have. In this sermon, we will delve into each of these biblical themes and explore how they unfold in this movie. Sound good to you? Now, before we go any further, we have the doors open to create a cross breeze, but now my papers are flying a little bit. Before we go any further, I do want to be transparent and let you know that in this message, we are going to be tackling difficult subject matter, including suicide, which comes up in this movie. I share that with you to say, please make sure during this sermon, you take the necessary steps, whatever those steps might look like for you, whatever those steps might involve, please make sure you take the necessary steps to care for yourself. Amen? So the movie begins against the backdrop of the Great Depression and prior to World War II. Actor Jimmy Stewart, a very gifted actor, plays the leading character, George Bailey. We have a picture of George Bailey up here on the screen. George Bailey is from the fictional town of Bedford Falls, located somewhere in America, the small town, sleepy little town, where his father runs the local building and loan. The building and loan is a small, financially unstable business committed to ensuring that everyday people without very much money can get into homes rather than maximizing profit. And George's father's dream for his son is that he will one day take over the building and loan. But does George want to do that? No. 
George has bigger hopes. He has bigger aspirations. He wants to get out of Bedford Falls. He wants to go to college. He wants to build, build big buildings. Uh, he wants to travel the world. He doesn't want to be confined to this town that he's known his entire life, Bedford Falls. So George has this ambitious side. But in addition to an ambitious side, he also feels a strong sense of duty to other people. For example, early in the movie, when he's a child, he rescues his younger brother Harry from drowning in a pond after Harry broke through the ice. He also intervenes and prevents a local pharmacist that he works for from accidentally poisoning a child. The pharmacist had just received a telegram that his son had died of the flu, and the pharmacist was distracted, and he was grieving over his son's death. Thankfully, George stopped him from not fulfilling that prescription properly. And then when George is a young man, his father suddenly passes away, leaving the building alone without a leader. Well, amidst all this, there's this wealthy gentleman in town, this guy by the name of Mr. Potter. Is Mr. Potter a nice guy? No, Mr. Potter is the villain of this movie. Every good story has a villain, doesn't it? He's the villain. He's the bad guy. He is this wealthy guy he controls all the wealth in the city. He wants nothing more than to see the building and loan shut down so he can force the residents of Bedford Falls to live in his slums and pay him rent so that he can get even more money, even though he already has a lot. So recognizing that Mr. Potter has this evil agenda, what George does after his father dies is he puts aside his dream of leaving Bedford Falls, going to college, traveling the world, building big buildings, so that he can assume the role as the primary leader of the building and loan. It's not what he wants to do, but that's what he does. He feels this sense of obligation. And then a short time later, George falls in love with his childhood sweetheart. Do you remember her name? Mary. Mary Hatch. And the two of them get married while they're just about ready to leave for their honeymoon when something really bad happens. There's a run on the bank. And because there's a run on the bank, there's a run on the building and loan. People are withdrawing large sums of money. They're closing their accounts. George realizes that if he doesn't act quickly, the building and loan is in danger of shutting down completely. So let's see what George does in this first clip from the movie that we're going to watch. Take a look. We can get through this thing, all right? We've got to stick together, though. We've got to have faith in each other. But my husband hasn't worked in over a year, and I need money. How am I going to live until the bank opens? i got Dr. Bills to pay. I need cash. I can't keep my kids on faith. I've got to have... How much do you need? Hey! I got $2,000. Here's $2,000. This will tide us over to the bank reopens. All right, Tom, how much do you need? $242. Oh, Tom, just enough to tide you over to the bank reopens. I'll take $242. There you are. That'll close my account. Your account's still here. That's a loan. Okay. All right, Ed. Well, I got $300 here, George. All right, now, Ed, what will it take until the bank opens? What do you need? Well, I suppose... Twenty dollars? Twenty dollars. Now you're talking. Thanks, Ed. That's fine. All right, now, Miss Thompson, how much do you want? But it's your own money, George. Never mind about that. How much do you want now? I can get along with twenty, all right. Twenty dollars. Fine. And I'll sign the papers. You don't have to sign anything. I know you. You pay when you can. That's okay. It would be nice if twenty dollars went as far today as it did back then. (laughs) But what happens here? George uses all the money that he and Mary saved up for their honeymoon 
to keep the building and loan operational. This is how George Bailey lives. He sacrifices himself. He lays aside his own well-being for the sake of other people. Well, things take a turn for the worse. Eight years later, 1946, on Christmas Eve, World War II has just ended. And Uncle Billy, who runs the building and loan with George, goes to deposit the money that the building and loan has at the bank. $8,000, which today would be about $85,000 in buying power. Well, Billy is kind of an absent-minded guy, and so he misplaces the money. He has no idea where he put it. And so, because the money is gone, the building and loan is in danger of shutting down. But not only that, because George Bailey takes responsibility for his uncle's actions, there is a good chance that George is going to be accused of misappropriation of funds. And he's going to be arrested and go to prison. So George does everything that he can on Christmas Eve of 1946 to recover that money. First, he retraces Billy's steps with Billy, and they try to find the money. They go back to the bank. They can't find the money. He even brings himself to go to Mr. Potter, who, by the way, has stolen the money, unbeknownst to George. He found it in the bank and knew exactly who it belonged to. He just takes it. He begs Mr. Potter for a loan, but Mr. Potter will not give him a loan. George panics. He freaks out. He's scared. He goes home. He has this big blow-up with his family. Screams at his wife. Screams at his children. And then he gets in the car, and he goes to a local bar to try and drink all his problems away. At the bar, he's sitting down, and he's crying out. He's saying, God, please give me an answer. I need an answer. Help me. And then when he feels that God doesn't answer him, he takes matters into his own hands. Let's see what George tries to do. Hey, what's the matter with you? Look where you're going. George holds an insurance policy on his life. And so the money that the policy promises in the event of his death, and overwhelmed by this incredible sense of failure, leads George to contemplate suicide. He believes that suicide is the answer here. Over the years as a pastor... I've ministered to families impacted by suicide. In fact, I remember one time getting a phone call from a wife just moments after she found her husband after he had killed himself. I've known people who have killed themselves. Folks, I'm going to be clear about something this morning. Suicide is never the answer. It is never the answer. Every human life is precious. Amen? Every human life has worth. 
Every human life has value. In fact, the Bible tells us on page one, the first statement that the Bible makes about humanity, it says that every human being has been made and created and designed in the image of God. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not religious, you have been made in God's image. Take a moment to consider that. Take a moment to ponder on that truth that as a human, you bear the image of the very one who put all this together, who spoke galaxies into existence, who put the stars and the planets in their places. Doesn't that amaze you? Doesn't that inspire you? Doesn't that fill you with awe and send shivers down your spine? David tells us in Psalm 139, my favorite psalm in Scripture, that all of us have been fearfully and wonderfully made. God knit us together with intention and purpose in our mother's womb. It goes without saying that God cares deeply for all of creation. After all, he made all this. He cares deeply for all of creation. He cares about the lakes. He cares about the rivers. He cares about the stars. He cares about the planets. He cares about animals. However, nothing compares to God's infinite love for human beings. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, Jesus confirms our worth when he shares these words. What is the price of two sparrows? Jesus asked. One copper coin, but not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your Father knowing it. And the very hairs in your head are all numbered. Now for me, that's not very many. For others of you, that's much more. But the very hairs in your head, doesn't matter how many hairs, the very hairs in your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Your life is of immeasurable value. You mean so much to God that at Christmas time, God came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, the babe of Bethlehem, to give you life and salvation, and wholeness, and peace. Listen, if you're going through a tough season right now, and you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, please know that there are resources available. We have up here on the screen the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can call or text this number, 988, anytime that you want, 24-7. Uh, counselors are always available. There's a prevention uh, lifeline there are counselors, Pastor Will, Pastor Barbara, myself. We would love the opportunity to sit down with you, to talk with you, to process with you. Please know you are not alone. You're not alone. Your life is precious. You have worth and you have value. What I appreciate about this movie is how it honestly deals with the pain of human life. Because the reality is, folks, all of us go through hard seasons, don't we? All of us experience difficult times. Maybe we're not necessarily suicidal like George Bailey, but there are those moments when we wonder, would the world be better off without me? Would the world be better off if I never existed? What we have to understand and recognize is that people in the Bible raised that very question. Elijah raised that question. Job raised that question. So did others. And so what we need in such fragile moments is for somebody to intervene, to step in, to open our eyes, to speak God's truth to us. That's precisely what George Bailey receives. George is there on the bridge. He's just about ready to jump in the water. Well, suddenly he's encountered by an angel named Clarence. Clarence jumps in the water ahead of George, and he pretends that he's drowning. 
he flails his arms up and he yells, Help! 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 Clarence knows that George, being the person that he is, remember George is always sacrificing himself for others. Remember George saved his little brother Harry from drowning. He knows that George is going to jump in the water and rescue him. And sure enough, that's what happens. George pulls Clarence to safety, and then the two of them go into a toll house with a toll keeper, and they dry off and they get warm. Well, as they're doing all that, Clarence reveals to George and to the toll keeper who he really is. Take a look. Oh, Tom Sawyer's drying out too. You should read the new book Mark Twain's writing now. How did you happen to fall in? I didn't fall in. I jumped in to save George. You what? To save me? Well, I did, didn't I? You didn't go through with it, did you? Through with what? Suicide. Well, it's against the law to commit suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Where do you come from? Heaven? I had to act quickly. That's why I jumped in. I knew if I were drowning, you tried to save me. You see, you did. And that's how I saved you. Uh, uh, very funny. Your lips bleeding, George. Yeah. I got a bust in the jaw in answer to a prayer a little bit ago. Oh, no, 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 George. I'm the answer to your prayer. That's why I was sent down here. How'd you know my name? Oh, I know all about you. I've watched you grow up from a little boy. What are you, a mind reader or something? <laughs> well, who are you, then? Clarence Oddbody, AS2. Oddbody. AS2, what, what, what's that, AS2? Angel, second class. <laughs> The toll collector is frightened when he learns the truth that Clarence is an angel. And that's a fitting reaction because that's how people in the Bible responded to angels too. In fact, whenever an angel shows up in the scriptures, do you know what the first words out of the angel's mouth are? Be not afraid, fear not. There is something about angels, isn't there, that tends to elicit fear, awe, wonder. And I think this is due to the mystery surrounding angels. We're not entirely sure what angels are. So let's take a brief moment to talk about angels this morning. Um, in the Bible, angels are celestial beings, heavenly beings, created by God for various purposes. Uh, think about the angel that God sends in the book of Genesis, one of the opening chapters, after Adam and Eve disobey God, they're sent away from the Garden of Eden, God puts an angel in place at the garden to stop human beings from coming inside. The prophet Isaiah talks about angels worshiping at God's throne, in the Gospels, Jesus talks about angels rejoicing in heaven every time a sinner repents of their sin and comes to salvation in Jesus Christ. And so throughout the Bible, angels serve these various purposes. However, the primary purpose they serve, the main purpose they serve, is to send a message. In fact, in both Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek, the word angel literally means messenger. Throughout the Bible, angels send messages all over the place. For example, in Daniel, the angel Gabriel, remember Gabriel, Gabriel comes to Daniel to help Daniel understand a message that he's received concerning the future, a prophetic message. And then in the New Testament, that same angel, Gabriel, goes to Zechariah when he's in the temple lighting incense to tell Zechariah that he's going to be the father of who? Do you remember? John the Baptist. 
And then Gabriel comes to Mary in Nazareth to tell Mary that she's going to carry the Christ child. And then after Mary gets pregnant, an angel shows up to Joseph in a dream. We're not sure if it was Gabriel or some other angel, but an angel shows up to Joseph to tell Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife because the child within her is from the Holy Spirit. And then once Jesus is born, an angel again shows up to Joseph in a dream to tell Joseph to take the child and his mother and go into Egypt because there are dangerous people coming after him, King Herod. And then, of course, the night of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2, we discover that an angel shows up to the shepherds, keeping watch over their flock at night, to tell the shepherds this incredibly good news that the Messiah, the King of the universe, has been born. And so throughout Scripture, angels serve as messengers. However, what we also learn from the Scriptures is that when angels appear, they don't always appear as we would imagine, right? In these, in these big, over-the-top, dramatic, illustrative ways. Instead, oftentimes they appear in ways that are more subtle, less obvious. Consider these words that the author of Hebrews emphasizes. This is from Hebrews 13, verses 1 and 2. The writer says, Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. The writer seems to infer that when angels show up, they take the guise of human beings, which is why we don't recognize them. We just see them as an everyday person like us. What I want to suggest to you this morning is just as angels can assume human form, we as individuals, by the grace of God, can function as angels when we reach out and we extend care and ministry to others. When I was in seminary, I interned at this church. And at the church, I met this member, uh, this woman, who led the middle school boy Sunday school class. How many of you would love to lead a middle school boy Sunday school class? She was an exceptional person. She told me about an experience she had with those young men that had a lasting impact. She said, at the time, I had a teenage son of my own. He's about 16, 17 years old, and unfortunately, he and I were not getting along. I would put boundaries in place. He would reject those boundaries. He would do his own thing. He got into trouble at school, got into a fist fight, got suspended. He even got into trouble with the police. I didn't know what to do. Well, eventually we had this big fight and he ran away from home. I had no idea where my son was. I was scared. I was frightened. Well, I received word about a day later that my son was with a friend. And I was relieved that he was safe, but I felt like a failure, just a miserable failure. I had failed him as a mother, as a parent. I was overcome with emotion. Well, I was scheduled to lead Sunday school that weekend, and I wanted to honor that commitment, she said. So I showed up to class, and I was distracted the entire time. I could not focus on these boys. I just I kept thinking about my son and how I failed him. Well, one of the boys was empathetic. He noticed my distress. And so he came up to me, and he said, Is everything okay? It seems like something's the matter. And she said, I just broke down. I started bawling in front of all these kids. I told them everything that had happened. I hadn't opened up to anybody at that moment, but I, I told it all to them. 
Well, suddenly one of the students spoke up and he said, Miss, can we pray for you? And suddenly she said, all these boys, about eight or ten of them, they surrounded her. They put their hands on her and they prayed for her and her son and her family. And she said, I'll never forget that experience. Those rambunctious boys, who sometimes I had a hard time controlling, well, in that moment, they became God's angels sent to minister to me. You see, folks, just as angels can take the guise of people, we as people, by the grace of God, we can function as angels when we reach out and we extend care and ministry to other people. Remember, God's primary way of working in this world isn't just to send angels, but it's to use human beings, the church, the body of Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6, he eloquently captures this idea. Paul says, share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor. We properly love our neighbor when we refuse to let them carry what they're going through alone, when we help them. George Bailey needs help, doesn't he? He needs perspective. He really is convinced that the world would be better off if he had never been born. And so on Christmas Eve, Clarence the angel gives George a very unique gift. He shows George what the world would actually be like if he had never existed. Take a look at this next clip. Mother. Mother, what do you want? Mother, this, this is George. I, I thought sure you'd remember me. George who? If you're looking for a room, there's no vacancy. Mother, listen, please help me. Something terrible's happened to me. I, I don't know what it is. Something's happened to everybody. Please let me come in and, and, and keep me here until I get over it. Get over what? I don't take in strangers unless they're sent here by somebody I know. What? Well, I know everybody you know. What you, your brother-in-law, Uncle Billy. You know him? Well, sure I do. When did you see him last? Today, over at his house. It's a lie. He's been in the insane asylum ever since he lost his business. And if you ask me, that's where you belong. <coughs> life touches so many other lives. And when he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Well, I've heard of things like this. You've got me in some kind of a spell or something. Well, I'm going to get out of it. I'll get out of it. And I know how, too. I... Now, the last man I talked to before all this stuff started happening to me was Martini. You know where he lives? Well, sure I know where he lives. He lives in Bailey Park. You sure this is Bailey Park? No, I'm not sure of anything anymore. All I know is this should be Bailey Park. But where are the houses? We went here to build them. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry.
You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? What would the world be like if George Bailey in this movie had never existed? Well, just before this clip, we find out that the town would no longer be called Bedford Falls. Do you know what it would be called? Pottersville. Because nobody would have been there to stand up to Mr. Potter and to stop Mr. Potter's evil agenda after George's father passed away. We also discover earlier in this movie that the pharmacist that George stopped from accidentally poisoning somebody, he would have gone to jail for 20 years for poisoning the child. George's younger brother, Harry, he would have fell through the ice and drowned. Consequently, he would have never served in World War II and saved every man on that transport. And therefore, every man on that transport would have died in the war. In essence, George Bailey comes to realize, he comes to grasp the profound impact that he has had on the world despite not living the life that he initially envisioned. Getting out of Bedford Falls, traveling the world, going to college, and building big buildings. And folks, this movie reminds all of us, it reminds each and every one of us, that even if our lives are not going as we want them to, even if our lives today are not what we would have expected, not what we would have dreamed, not what we would have hoped, we are still making a difference. Amen? We are still making an impact in ways that we don't even realize. Uh, there's a theory that you might have heard of before. It's called the butterfly effect. The theory proposes that a tiny butterfly, just imagine a butterfly, a tiny butterfly flapping its wings can cause a chain reaction of events leading to huge changes in the world's weather patterns. So who knows, maybe all this rain and wind that we're experiencing is actually because a butterfly yesterday was flapping its wings. I don't know. In other words, something small, something tiny, something insignificant can eventually give way to something huge. And that holds true for our lives, that the actions we take, the simple, ordinary actions, they make a difference in the grand scheme of things. A couple of weeks ago, I came across this social media post, and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, the post was written by Clint Smith, who's a popular author. Uh, I know this is hard to read, so I'm going to read it to you. Clint Smith says, On Colbert, of course, Colbert is a talk show. On Colbert last week, I mentioned my third grade teacher, Miss Mueller, who after reading a poem I wrote, he wrote this poem as a third grader, she told me I could be a writer when I grew up. I never forgot those words. So what an utter delight when I looked up from the signing table in New Orleans and saw Miss Mueller there. Isn't that incredible? Miss Mueller's encouragement to a third grader all those years ago inspired this young man to become a writer. Consequently, every one of his readers who has been influenced by his writing has actually been influenced by Miss Mueller. Think about the ordinary actions you take. For example, maybe you work in an office and you feel as if your work isn't making a difference. But at that office, you befriend a colleague and you invite that colleague to one of our worship services here at Asbury United Methodist Church. And that colleague of yours comes into a deep awareness of God's love for them in Jesus Christ. And then eventually, a short time later, that person actually answers a call from God to the ministry. You had a part in that. 
You had a role in that by the grace of God. And every person that would be impacted by that minister has actually been impacted by what you did. Do you see how God's economy works? Or maybe you're a greeter here at Asbury, and you wonder, is that really making a difference? I'm just smiling at people and welcoming them and passing out bulletins. But you know what? A person comes through our doors who's struggling with suicidal thoughts. And you smile at that person. And you say, it's so nice to see you here. And that's the encouragement that that person needed to get through a really tough day, to know that there are people who care about them, who really do love them. The actions we take make a difference. George Bailey receives that epiphany on Christmas Eve. And so he begs Clarence to be sent back, even if it means that he'll be arrested and go to jail. Only George isn't arrested. He doesn't go to jail. Because when Mary, his wife, learns that her husband is in trouble, she's a really good spouse, she calls up every person in town, and they all come together. They all rally around to help George and to raise the money. Let's see what happens in this last clip. George, the richest man in town. And so in the end, the money is collected, the arrest warrant is torn up, and everybody raises a glass to George Bailey, the richest man in town. George's life wasn't so bad after all, was it? It was a blessing. And folks, our lives are blessings too if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Let's help every person recognize that truth today. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, just over here is a manger and today, this morning, as Pastor Will mentioned during the announcements, we are observing March of the Manger, an annual tradition here at our church, where we raise money for a cause beyond our church. And this morning's cause is going to be for the Central Florida Wesley Foundation, a wonderful organization and ministry that impacts college students in the Orlando area. Uh, our goal is to raise $12,000. We do encourage you uh, to please give generously today. This is over and above any planned giving to our operational budget. 
Uh, make sure that your check is made payable to Asbury and indicate in the memo line that it's for March to the Manger or Central Florida Wesley, however you want to word that. Alternatively, um, you can give on Asbury's website. In fact, Amanda and I this morning, uh, we're going to give online on Asbury's website. You can also bring in your gift at a later date. Uh, we just simply ask that you would try to do so before the end of the year. Let's pray together. God, thank you for creating us with intention and purpose. Thank you that you love us so much that in Jesus Christ, you confirmed our worth and our value. You were born, you were crucified, you rose again on Easter Sunday. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the people around us who are struggling, who are hurting. Help us to help them realize just how precious they really are. God, empower us now as we give these monies to Central Florida Wesley and use these gifts in such a way that more and more people may come to receive your salvation in Jesus, in whose name we give, in whose name we pray. Amen.